Hey, Dumpster Dwellers. We have a special interview with Graydon Clark for you today, but if you haven't listened to our latest episode, 314 Uninvited, you might want to go do that before you listen to this interview. Everyone else, strap on those life jackets, because we're about to cruise the career of a low-budget legend. Enjoy. You think it could be a teratoma? I don't know. I don't think so. Never seen anything like this. Look, just bring the subject in and we'll cut it open. See what's growing inside of it. Hey, what's up? Today we're talking with one of the godfathers of low-budget cinema, Graydon Clark. Graydon, how you doing? Doing just fine, Joe. Thank you for having me on. Thanks for coming on the show. We really appreciate it. Yes, we do. You, you have no idea. I'm holding back so much until I, <laughs> I get to a certain thing I really want to talk about. <laughs> so I guess I'm actually speaking to Joe, Connor, and Sean. Correct. Yep. Yes. Well, thank all three of you uh, collectively and individually. Thank you. Thank you. So, so I've I've read your book on the cheap. What an excellent guide to, to your not only your life and and the filmmaking business, but uh, just a lot of insight to kind of how how it all worked then and probably even still does now. But it's just really incredible and full of amazing stories and and you and you go through each of your films individually. And what's so unique about it really is the way that it's written, which I really enjoyed uh, because it's formatted as a screenplay. And I thought that was brilliant. So what happened was I, I have two sons uh, uh, and they're now in their 30s and I didn't have them till I was in my 40s. Uh, so they they missed uh, about half of my career. Uh, and they said to me, kept saying to me, dad, you, you got to write an autobiography. You got to write. I said, ah, the hell nobody gives a shit about uh, some, uh, uh, low budget filmmaker. Well, you know, you got a lot of people on Facebook and all that. So I said, okay. So I sat down and I started writing my autobiography and I began like a regular autobiography. And I would look up at the computer screen and I'd say, wait a minute, that looks like a screenplay to me. Because I'd written so many screenplays, I kept defaulting into that format. Right, right. So I said, uh, well, what the hell? Why don't I write this as if it was a screenplay, a modified screenplay? And uh, I would take each of my 20 films that I directed, plus a couple that I helped other people get out where I produced and another that I wrote, but did not direct. So uh, I said, I'll take my each film and I will divide it into categories again, as if it was a screenplay. And I would start the uh, chapter, if you will, on the film with where did the idea come from for the story? And uh, then I would write that, you know, how I came across or came up with the idea. Then I would write about writing the actual screenplay. Uh, and each each of my films took roughly one year to from uh, concept to uh, playing in the theaters or later in the years on DVD. Yeah, it's incredible. So I, I would write the screenplay. Then I would come to the most difficult, (laughs) 
thing, and that is how do I get this financed? Because yeah. <laughs> I, I was a, I don't want to say poor boy, but lower middle class from a small town in the Midwest. My father was a barber uh, uh, in a one shop, one chair shop in a town of about 5,000 people. So I really didn't have any money of my own. So I, I had to, until later years, I had to come up somehow with the financing for the film that I was trying to do. So I write, again, the the uh, uh, subheading of the chapter would be, where did I get my financing? Then I went to post, excuse me, pre-production, uh, which is, in effect, casting and finding the locations and hiring the crew and every, getting everything ready for the actual production. Then I would write a, a subchapter on the production of the particular film, uh, how it went, what problems I had, uh, how the cast was, uh, uh, and so on. And, and then I would go into post-production, which is editing and uh, music, sound effects, titles, that sort of thing. Uh, then once the picture was finished, I had to get it distributed. Then I would talk about, uh, or write about more accurately, the distribution of the film. Uh, what were the, how did I get the distributor? What were the results of it? So on and so forth. And throughout my career, obviously I had a family to support about halfway through my career. Uh, and that was important. But uh, really the important thing to me, especially at the beginning of my career, was that my films would make enough money so that I could make another picture. I loved making movies, and that's what I wanted to do. And uh, so uh, I started uh, really, uh, I went to Hollywood in 1965. And uh, three years later, I was involved in a picture with a guy named Al Adamson, a picture that I had written. And from that forth, uh, for the next 20 or 25 years, I ended up directing 20 features. That's amazing. That's incredible. <laughs> yeah. So what got you into filmmaking? I mean, I've, I've personally read the book, but um, for our listeners, if you can give a little bit of uh, background there, that'd be great. Well, uh, the book is called On the Cheap, My Life in Low-Budget Filmmaking, and it's, it's available at my website, greatinclark.com. What happened is this, uh, <laughs> way back in the mid-60s, there was something called the United States Military Draft, and all men of, oh, I guess 20, uh, I think you had to sign up when you were 18, and they were drafting people 20, 21, and that's what I was. And uh, you didn't have a choice. It was compulsory service. So uh, I was in Michigan and I got my uh, uh, notice to appear for a physical because the army gave you a physical before they took you in. And this was just before, and I mean a month or two before, Lyndon Johnson, the then president, called up uh, half a million American servicemen to go to Vietnam. Uh, but I was very lucky at, lucky throughout my life. 
And uh, I was drafted about a month before the major call-up. Well, I thought I was very healthy and, you know, I was a basketball player in college and so on. So I'm standing in Detroit where they shipped you to, to get this uh, 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 medical uh, examination. And they looked in my ears and they said to me, you have a scarred eardrum. Well, in, in, in those days, a scarred eardrum meant that you didn't have to go in the service. Now, a month later, if you could, if you could walk without a major, if you, if you had two legs, they were taking you in. Right. But at that time, with a scarred eardrum, I was considered not physically fit. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> Otherwise, I would have gone to Vietnam, and to say the least, my whole life would have changed and certainly not for the yeah. better. Yeah, that's that's incredible. Uh, so then I was a free man, so to speak. Uh, and I thought, you know, I've always loved movies. I, I lived, as I say, in a small town, a town that had one movie theater and they only showed major movies. They didn't show independence or foreign films or anything of that nature. But I loved them. I loved uh, and I knew I had no idea what a director did. The only thing I knew about a director was that it was the last credit before the movie started. <laughs> so I thought, what the hell? You know, I knew what an actor was because I'd see John Wayne or Jimmy Stewart or Cary Grant or whoever on the screen. I thought, oh, I could do that. <laughs> so I hopped in my car with about $300, $400 in my pocket and headed to Hollywood because that's where I thought movies were made. And most of them were, especially in those days. So I got there not knowing a soul. Uh, I went into a bookstore on Hollywood Boulevard. And uh, I was looking for some help as to what to do next. And I found a book entitled A Young Actor's Guide to Hollywood. So I bought the book, and in the back of the book, there was a glossary, and in there, it listed a acting coach. And it, it throughout the book, it said, you know, you need to get training and learn what the hell you're doing. So I contacted this acting coach. I went to see him. I had never been in a play. I had never, uh, I'd never done anything like that. So he asked me to read a scene. Well, you know, I was... I guess fairly good. He said, well, I'll take you on. I, I think what he saw in me was the $5 he was going to charge me per lesson. <laughs> <laughs> so I started seeing him and I would go, uh, I was selling crap door to door to pay my rent uh, and to pay the acting uh, coach. So, so uh, after a year, a year, I had not gotten, an interview. I tried to see agents. They wouldn't see me. Uh, it was miserable. So after actually about a year and a half, and uh, at first I took quote private lessons, but then uh, he he would do a class of six or eight people, and we would meet. Uh, he did it out of his house. We would meet at his place, and he would give us group instructions. So I met a girl there who uh, said to me, uh, Graydon, uh, I'm being called back for an interview for a picture. It's the second or third callback, but 
the director is hitting on me and I'm not interested in him. So would you come with me and I will introduce you as my boyfriend. So I thought (laughs) she wants me to be a beard. (laughs) (laughs) So I thought for about two seconds, would I like to go meet a director? Oh yeah. Okay. Vicky was her name. Okay, Vicky, I'd love to do that. So we went down to his office, little tiny, tiny, I mean, little tiny office. And uh, she went in and I stood kind of in the hallway, but she left the door open and she introduced me as uh, a fellow member of her acting class. Uh, And everything was fine. You know, she had the interview with the director. And as we were leaving, uh, as I say, I was in the doorway as we were leaving, he got a telephone call. It's, it's funny how little things can change one's life completely. He got a telephone call, and I heard him say, yes, I'm playing tonight. So I said to him, well, what do you play? He said, we play basketball at the YMCA. Well, you know, I was a little over six foot tall and thin and looked like I might be a basketball player. And I said to him, yeah, I, I played in college. He said, oh, why don't you come down and join us at the Y? Well, I hadn't played for, I don't know, a year, year and a half, but uh, I figured I could hold my own at the Y. So so I went down, we played, we became friends. This was Al Adamson. Ah, okay. We became friends. Uh, Al was doing a picture. He did cast, uh, he did cast Vicky in that uh, uh, role. And uh, since we became friends, I asked him, uh, could you cast me? Well... Uh, I assume it's still true, but you had to be a member of Screen Actors Guild to be cast in a movie uh, if you had a line. Well, I wanted to join Screen Actors Guild, so Al had me play an assistant FBI guy to the main FBI guy who was being played by Broderick Crawford. Uh, Broderick was Academy Award winner, actually. An old-time actor. By this time, he was uh, had a problem with the bottle. So anyhow, he, he there's a scene in his office. He turns to me and says, hand me that file. I say, yes, sir. And those two words got me into Screen Actors Guild. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I just want to say, I love the idea of someone looking at the body of work of John Wayne and going, yeah, I can do this. <laughs> Later, I would realize I should have been looking at the work of John Ford. But at any rate, uh, so Al made the picture and I became not an assistant director because that's a very specific job. And I was certainly not qualified for that. But I became an assistant to Al, which basically meant I was a gopher. Needed coffee. I would go get it. Need scripts copied. I would go do it. Whatever. In, in the meantime, I was uh, still trying to sell crap door to door to pay my rent. But uh, uh, Al uh, took the picture to Utah. To uh, He shot most of it in Hollywood, but he had like a week or so in Utah. And it was a low budget picture. I think it was about 150,000, uh, which today would be four or five, six hundred thousand. So, or more, probably 750. So uh, I went with him to Utah. Uh, 
And on the way back, I was riding in his car, he and I, again, because we'd become friends. So I was so naive. I thought, well, he finished that picture. We'll start another one tomorrow. (laughs) (laughs) So we're in the car heading to Hollywood from Utah. And I say to him, so what's next? He looked at me like I was nuts. He said, well, I I don't know. I said, I've got a a treatment, a 20-page treatment for a Western. Uh, I got to somehow find somebody to write a screenplay out of it. I said, well, I'll do that. Now, talk about being idiotic and brazen. I had seen one screenplay in my entire life, which is the one that Al had just finished doing. And he said, uh, what do you mean you'll do it? You, you don't know anything about writing a screenplay. And I said the magic words to Al. I said, well, Al, you don't have to pay me. Oh, (laughs) his eyes light up. No, did they ever be my guest? (laughs) So, so I said, look, I'll write it. If you use it, you can pay me then, but otherwise you got nothing to lose. So he said, okay. So we got back to Hollywood. He gave me the uh, 20 page treatment. It was a Western. And, uh, I, I, uh, I knew how to type. (laughs) which I took typing in high school because it was a young teacher who was well endowed. So, so all of the guys took typing (laughs) and, and uh, I think that's the best thing uh, uh, was Paul Simon uh, writes. uh, When I look back at all the things I learned in high school, it's a wonder I can think at all. Well, when I look back, at least I know how to type. (laughs) So anyhow, I write the screenplay and, uh, it, it, you know, it takes a month. And uh, I remember thinking, what the hell? How do I, what do I do here? So I, on Hollywood Boulevard, they were playing one of the early Clint Eastwood spaghetti westerns. It may have been the second one. It may have been the first. Anyhow, I went to see it, loved it. And I thought, huh. Well, wait a minute. Maybe it's just like you're telling the story of a movie. So I was kind of an inventive guy, and I thought, I'll just sit down and I'll follow the the uh, uh, treatment, and then I'll fill it in, you know, with dialogue and other scenes and what have you. So I wrote uh, the screenplay and got it to Al. And believe it or not, he liked it. I was shocked. I figured he would tear it apart. But anyhow, he liked it. And then in a in a month or so, through a weird series of circumstances, luck, uh, the script was given to Robert Taylor. Robert Taylor was an old time actor, had been had been at MGM longer than any other star. He was a major, major star. Uh from the 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s. And uh, he had just finished a television series called The Detectives. The script was given to him through a mutual friend. And uh, he liked it. Oh, my God. You know, so he agreed to do it. So with Robert Taylor on board, uh, it was given to ABC Television. Barry Diller was in charge of movies of the week. That was a new thing for television. And Robert Taylor was considered a star and he was a star. And, uh, 
So he read the script and he liked it. So he agreed to give Al, I don't know, three or four or 500,000. And the picture was going to be made in Spain. In those days, it's probably still true today, the uh, Italian Westerns were made by Italian companies, but actually shot in Spain. So we're ready to go to Spain. Suddenly we hear on the radio, Robert Taylor taken to Cedar Sinai's hospital with lung cancer. Oh, oh, shit. Yeah, that was my feeling. So, so he never made another picture. Al, you know, Al is no longer with us, and I certainly don't want to talk ill of the departed, but Al was a very depressive type of guy. He had, he had uh, uh, you know, he'd be high one day and very, very depressed the other. Uh, and, of course, this obviously... You know, he was counting on this to make his career, and it would. Uh, and Robert Taylor, he went into a deep depression. Now, frankly, had I known then what I know now, I just would have replaced Robert Taylor. I would have found some other actor that ABC agreed with, and we would have made the picture. But Al just kind of fell off the uh, uh, earth for three weeks, let's say. Then he, and he, he went to New York. He came back and he called me and he said, he said, I, uh, I ran into these guys in New York City who want to make low-budget movies and they'll give me $50,000 to make a movie. He said, but I, I can't make a movie for 50000 The last one was one hundred and fifty, and it was low-budget. So... I don't know. I said, well, look, Al, I'll write it, and you don't have to pay me. (laughs) (laughs) The magic words again. (laughs) Ding, ding. Yeah. And uh, I said, I'll just write something that we can do for $50,000. So I went, uh, motorcycle movies were hot then. Easy Rider was out around the same time, wasn't it? Easy Rider was, and Corman had done a couple of motorcycle pictures. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I wrote a picture called Satan's Sadist. And uh, we made it for $50,000 near, uh, well, kind of on the outskirts of Palm Springs. Uh, And that's really where I got to know what a director really did or should do. Uh, And I thought, wow, you know, the best job on a movie set is not the actor, but it's the director. And by that time, I had uh, purchased and read a lot of autobiographies of directors. Uh, Howard Hawks, John Ford, uh, Hitchcock, both biographies and autobiographies. Hitchcock, uh, 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 William Wyler, Billy Wilder, all the great, great Hollywood directors. And I poured through those books and, and, and loved every second of it. So in this script of uh, Satan Sadist, I wrote a very good part for me as one of the gang members. Uh, and uh, the picture was made, was released. Uh, Al and his New York guys formed a distribution company to distribute the picture that cost $50,000 and the picture was a huge hit, made over a half a million dollars, made out a lot of money. In fact, really 
effectively made Al's career. Uh, and I received $300 a week for two weeks. My minimum as an actor never paid a penny for the script. And then I, I stayed with the editor throughout the editing. And that's really where I learned how movies were made uh, in the editing room. And I stayed there for six months, never got a penny, uh, eating crackers and peanut butter for, for dinners. Uh, and Al became a multimillionaire. So, so, so anyhow, after that picture was finished, I wrote one that I wanted to make. I ended up directing it myself and then made enough money to do the next one, the next one, the next one. And as I say, 22 or three years later, I had finished 20 features. Yeah, that's amazing. Um, so so when you finally got to ter- direct your own film, um, that was Mothers, Fathers, and Lovers. Yes. Right? Um, and you somehow made that work for a budget of 10 grand. Well, I've made <laughs> countless <laughs> mistakes throughout my career. But one of the ones that I kept doing is when I had a chance to get some money from somebody, I would ask for too little. Mm. So what happened was I told you I was selling crap door to door, right? Well, I stopped that when, when once I started working for Al. Uh, uh, but there was a guy that was a salesman there with me. Uh, I was sitting in a movie theater in downtown Los Angeles, they used to, believe it or not, have movies for 25 cents, and that's about all I could afford. So I would go to downtown L.A. and these old, big old barns of theaters. I was sitting there watching a uh, uh, hundred rifles with uh, Jim Brown, Raquel Welch, and Burt Reynolds. So, so uh, the theater was almost empty. It was in the middle of the day. Suddenly, some asshole behind me started kicking the back of my seat. <laughs> oh, no. And I thought, what the hell? I turned around, and it was a guy I knew from those sales days three years earlier. Oh, great. How you doing? Bob, how are you? What are you doing these days? Well, you know, my father just passed away, and I am running his business here in downtown Los Angeles. He had a little factory there. He said, uh, he said, but I hate it. It's just awful. And I said, oh, he said, he said to me, what are you doing? I said, well, you know, I'm an actor now, an actor. What the, what? Cause I had never told any of the guys I was selling stuff about right. my acting ambitions. And I never told my acting pals that I was selling crap at night. So, so he said, an actor. I said, yeah, I also, wrote a script that's produced and the guy made a lot of money and I'm trying to do my own now. He said, well, how much does something like that cost? And like an idiot, because when I knew the guy, he was starving like me. In fact, he had his car repossessed and I I loaned him uh, $300, I think it was, uh, uh, to get his car back. So uh, I figured he didn't have any money. He said, uh, well, what would you need? I said, oh, 10 grand. He said, oh, I could get you 10 grand. I inherited this business from my father. Uh, uh, I said, okay, good. Let's do it. Oh, by the way, Bob, remember when I loaned you $300 to get your car out of repossession? <laughs> you never paid me that back. Because I figured I'd never hear from the guy again. Right, right. So I'll give you the $300. Come down tomorrow to my uh, 
place of business. I'll give you the 300 and we can sign papers on the 10,000. So the next day I went down, I got me $300. We signed papers for the 10,000 and I made the movie. How I did that, I have absolutely no idea. But I, I, I had met people on Satan, crew members on Satan's sadists. And I went to them and I said, listen, you know, I'm doing my first picture. I need your help. Uh, can you, can you, uh, work at a third or a fourth of what you normally get? Well, most of them were young people like me and struggling and what have you. And, uh, they agreed to do it. So, so then I had to figure out how to get equipment. So I went to an equipment house, a house that I had visited to pick up stuff for Al Adamson. And I said to the guy, look, I, you know, I'm making my own movie. I don't have any money. Can you give me credit on it? Ah, we don't give credit to anybody. 10,000 guys come asking for it. I said, well, what can we do? He said, well, you know, I'll tell you what, come with me. So we went to his back warehouse and on the upper shelf filled with cobwebs, he said, I'll let you use any of that equipment for $1,000 a week. Well, it was at least 30-year-old equipment, probably 50-year-old equipment. But for me, it was equipment. It was lights. He had a camera. It was a, a dolly track. You know, it was stuff I could use. So yeah, I got that for like 1000 for the week. I shot the movie in two weeks. Uh, so and now I had equipment. I had crew. I went to a film laboratory, again, a guy I knew uh, from from working with Al. And uh, <laughs> I said, uh, listen, I need you to do the laboratory work and supply me with film. Well, we don't do that. I said, well, read this script. So I got him to read the script. Next day or a couple of days later, he says, I'll do it, but I want to play this part. So like everybody else in Hollywood, really, there's only one job, and that's an actor. Everybody wants to be an actor. Right. So this guy, <laughs> until they know better, <laughs> <laughs> this guy owned a laboratory. It was probably worth, I don't know, a lot of money, whatever. And he was willing to give me credit on all the laboratory work and supply me raw stock if he could be have a part in the movie. So naturally I cast him. So so in those days there was no such thing as hell there wasn't any internet or anything. Certainly no iPhones. Things had to be shot on film. And uh major studios were shooting 500,000 feet of film. I had 10,000 feet for the whole movie. <laughs> oh my goodness. <laughs> my God. So I had to be very careful, uh, obviously, uh, uh, on my coverage, what angles I was going to use. Almost never do take two. Uh, I would only do take two if somebody really blew it. Uh, so anyhow, I made that movie, finished it. It was, well, I hate to say this because I, uh, it's heresy. But it was inspired by The Graduate. Oh, really? Okay. Great, great movie. Uh, and uh, The Graduate is about a guy who comes home from college and tries to readjust to uh, uh, 
life. So I, my script was about a guy, I played it myself, was about a guy who comes back from Vietnam and uh, tries to readjust to society. Uh, I was always a very political person, very anti-Vietnam. Mm-hmm. I felt and still feel terrible for all the guys and gals that went over there, many of whom didn't come back and many of whom that did come back still suffer to this day. At any rate, so it was an anti-Vietnam, anti-military uh, comedy, social comedy like The Graduate. So I finished the picture and I start screening for distributors. They hated it. <laughs> the distributors would come to the screening in a suit and tie and they would have a young executive, a gopher like I was with Al, with them. I would screen the picture, and a couple of them said it, it was also anti-marriage. <laughs> yeah, it was. It was let young people do what they want. You know, don't follow society's rules. Right. Sure. Uh, so, a couple of the t- distributors would stand up after and say, "This goddamn movie! If my daughter ever sees it, I'm going to come and find you, Graydon, and slit your throat." <laughs> I, mean, I mean, they were visceral in their response to it. Then they would leave and their young guy would come back to me and say, I love this picture. It's fantastic. It's, it's great. You know, and, and the, the, the kid at the projection booth, when the screening was over, I go back to pick up my film. Oh, great. This is terrific. I've never seen anything like this. This is great. You know, so anyhow, <laughs> I did find a distributor a younger guy, a guy who had long hair like I did at the time and uh, flowered shirts he wore. And uh, he, he, he had an older guy who was really the head of the company, but he convinced this guy to distribute the film. So I was smart enough or lucky enough because they wouldn't give me any money. They were a small, small company. So my deal with them was, you know, they could get the distribution rights but if they did not pay me, I think it was $25,000 in uh, six months, I could get the rights to the picture back. So they took it and released it in, oh, hell, I don't know, two or three cities in the South. That's where the older guy was from. And uh, one one distributor that I'd screened it for came to me afterwards and said, Graydon, this picture really works. I had a lot of sound pull-ups and flashbacks and kind of avant-garde stuff. He said, but you know what? When the guy comes back from Vietnam, he should have gotten involved in a holdup. He should have held up a, a liquor store or something. And I looked at him and I thought, this guy's crazy. This It's not the movie that I made, you know? Right. So anyhow, when I did finally get it distributed, six months later, they had paid me nothing. I got the rights to the picture back. And I thought, oh, Christ, now what? So, as I said, I was always a political animal back uh, uh, in 1963 when I was living with my parents. Uh, Martin Luther King had a parade in South Bend, Indiana. I was selling cars then. And uh, I participated in that parade. I loved Martin Luther King and everything he stood for. Uh, Although in the small town in Michigan where I came from, 
Now that, let's shall we say, was not a popular thought. Right. Unfortunately. Yes, right. And probably still isn't. But anyhow, uh, I was very politically active. And, and uh, so flash forward now to, what, five years, uh, no more, six, seven, uh, seven years. I have this picture that uh, I get back from the distributor. And in the picture, the it opens in Vietnam. And the guy that I play, white guy, is standing next to his black buddy. And they're talking about race relations in the United States and uh, commiserating about how terrible it is. You know, it seems like today, doesn't it? Yeah, Yeah, sadly. Yeah. But at any rate, suddenly a shot rings out. I am wounded. The black guy is killed. So I thought, huh, black exploitation films were big at the time. I thought, I wonder if I could turn this white bread social comedy into a black exploitation film. Well, I did. <laughs> he sure did. Yes. I, I, I kept about 30 minutes, excuse me, 20 minutes of the old film, shot a new 30, 35 minutes. I don't know. Is this adding up to 85 or 90? Anyhow. Uh, of a black exploitation film, and uh, that I had no problem getting a distributor for, uh, because it it started a white guy, me, and a black guy, and it was about racial conflict. Uh, the film begins with me uh, back from Vietnam going to visit the father of my black buddy who was killed there to pay my respects to him. The father lives in Watts. He has a younger son, younger brother of my buddy, who resents the fact that I'm a white guy standing on his front porch. So, and I try to befriend him. And then there's two racist cops played by uh, Aldo Ray and, and, uh, uh, shit, how can I not think of that? Aldo Ray and Jock Mahoney, sorry. Uh, uh, they're, they're beating the hell out of the black guys all the time. And uh, put him in handcuffs and beat him up. So through a series of circumstances, the black guy thinks, the young black guy thinks that I am on the white cop's side. So there's a big conflict and we resolve it and don't resolve it and, and back and forth. And that was the movie. That movie was very successful. Now, uh, I got 5,000 more dollars to shoot the 30 minutes of the black exploitation, adding it to the 30 minutes uh, or 35 minutes of my old film. I shot it in one week, and but it was kind of good. It was a political film. And as I say, I've always been uh, very political. So I had no trouble getting a distributor. The picture went out, did really well, well enough so that the distributor came to me and said, Graydon, we want you to do another black exploitation film. And I said, no, 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 I don't want to do that. This should be a black director. You know, uh, this, this film just was generated for other reasons. Sure. Well, look, we'll give you the money. Oh, well, wait. <laughs> <laughs> they agreed to give me $50,000. I should have asked for more. <laughs> So I said, okay, but I'm not going to do a black film where the black hero is a cop or a drug pusher or a pimp or something like that. 
They said, I don't care what he is as long as it's a black hero. <laughs> so I said, okay, it's going to be an upscale Beverly Hills businessman. And I thought, so what could he do in Beverly Hills as a black mm-hmm. businessman? Well, Warren Beatty was making shampoo. Right. I thought, huh, why don't I do black shampoo? People came to me and said, are you crazy? You're going to be sued. (laughs) I said, who's going to sue me? They said, Warren Beatty. I said, Warren Beatty is way too smart to sue me. That would just give me publicity. He's not going to care. So anyhow, I made that film. It was successful enough. Every year for the next 17, 18 years, I was lucky enough to make a film. Yeah, that's so incredible. Uh, I want to skip ahead a little bit um, to to Without Warning. Yes, that's one of my favorite films that you've done. That that Joysticks and Uninvited are, are my are my personal favorites. Thank you. Um, but um, yeah, Without Warning, there was a big question I wanted to ask you about that. I'll give you a big answer. <laughs> <laughs> so when Predator came out, yes, was there any type of you know? I mean, I guess what I'm asking is like they borrowed heavily. <laughs> From that film. Yes. Let's put it that way. Did anybody credit you or say thank you for the inspiration? Or like like Shane Black or any of them? Or No. The only thing that happened is... <laughs> mine was three or four years before Predator. And yeah. Arnold Schwarzenegger, we, in an interview, I believe it was while they were still filming. I think they filmed in Mexico. Uh, when they asked him, what's the picture about? He said, well... Did you ever see a little picture called Without Warning about an alien who comes and hunts? Ours is ours is kind of like that. I thought, thanks a lot, Arnold. <laughs> it's the same movie. <laughs> we ripped it off. It's fine. It's cool. Oh, I was going back through the catalog last week and I was like, I was like, oh, my God. I was like, Jack Pounds is Dutch and Kevin Peter Hall is the alien in both films. Yeah. That, that's the nutty connection for me. It's the fact the same guy is playing essentially the same kind of creature. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. And and Kevin was a very, very nice fellow, very intelligent fellow. And he was about six, six, well, probably more six, seven, six, eight, something like that. Good Lord. And you're a very tall guy yourself. So that must have been like, wow. And he, he was, he was very, uh, very cooperative, very good. He didn't, he, I felt that, Look, some people criticize me for not showing the alien earlier on in the picture. I disagreed with that because I had these little flying creatures that they, that that would fly through the air and glop onto somebody's face or body and yeah. dig into them and what have you. And I felt that was very unique and uh, frightening enough that I could hold off showing the alien until maybe the beginning of the third act. And uh, uh, so I did. And I think it probably worked better because once you see, well, once you see the big fish in Jaws, then you know, well, I'm seeing a big fish. But building up to it, I think is is better, scarier than showing it too early. So... Uh, without warning uh, is 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 one that a lot of people uh, talk about and ask me about, and uh, you know it's 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 
it's a picture that I'm proud of. Yeah, it's great. No, I totally agree with you on that, too, because it's also it's kind of like, well, are the aliens just these flying discs that are killing people? You know what I mean? Exactly. Um, And then you have this big, wonderful Rick Baker sculpted (laughs) uh, monster at the end, you know, very, very cool stuff. And and I guess the uh, Predator people felt the same way about not showing it until the last third of the film. (laughs) I was going to say, like, they use the same trick. Well, what do they say? Imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. Yeah. Yeah. But that doesn't put any money in your pocket. (laughs) That's true. That's true. So joysticks, one of the best teenage comedies of all time well thank Uh, you thank you excellent 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 flick i mean i mean you you, we got joe don baker we got andrew dice clay george kennedy john grise i mean it's it's star-studded it's amazing here's what happened with joysticks i the picture i did before joysticks was a picture called wacko Mm -hmm. and uh i had joe don baker in that uh uh I had really a great cast, George Kennedy, Stella Stevens, and uh, Andrew Dice Clay. It was his first film. Uh, Julia Duffy, an Emmy Award winner. All these people, well, not not the, not the three main older actors. <laughs> sure. But the young people, it was all their first or second film. And uh, I made that picture, uh, one of my favorites. I, you know, I said, whatever picture we talk about, I'll say one of my favorites. Because... Because all of my pictures, they all have something in them that I remember favorably and enjoy. And and uh, some were more successful than others. Some had better box office. Some were received better. But I I enjoyed all of my films. But anyhow, after after I finished Wacko, I had a test screening in San Antonio, Texas. I went down there from Los Angeles, where I lived. I went down there. Uh, walked into the multiplex theater, big theater, and I saw, I don't know, 20 or so young guys standing in a line over to one side of the lobby. And I thought, what the hell is that? What are they giving popcorn away or what? So I walked over there (laughs) and I saw my first video arcade game. And they were standing in line with their quarters waiting for the guy in front of them to lose then he would step away and they would step up and play. And I looked at it and I thought, oh, my God, I could make a movie based on this. So the, the screening was very successful with Wacko. And we it was, it was to find a distributor, which we did. The distributor, by that time, I was getting money in advance. It was really nice. And uh, I went back to Los Angeles and I started working on... Uh, the screenplay for joysticks. And uh, <laughs> there were two guys who used to, oh, I, I put them in as really extras in my movies. They would hang around my office. Nice guys, young guys. And uh, when I got back, they said, uh, how did the screening go? Oh, good, good. I said, I have an idea to do a movie uh, in and around a video arcade. Uh, the young people are going to be the stars and the older people will be the parents who try and shut down the arcade uh, because they think it's a bad influence on their children. So they said to me, let me write it, let me write it. And it reminded me of when I said to Al Adamson 10 years earlier, 
let me write into them. So I said, oh, guys, I don't know, you know, because I didn't think of them as writers. Sure. But I said, I'll tell you what, go ahead and and write it. I didn't want to be like Al and not pay them anything. So I said, I'll give you a thousand bucks. And when it's done, if I use most of it, I'll give you more money. And I said, here's the story. And I outlined the story for them, the various beats on the story. They wrote it. Frankly, it wasn't very good. I wasn't happy with it. So I said, well, okay, guys, here's your grant. Thanks very much. I'll give you screen credit. And then I had a guy working for me at the time as an editor who also was very brilliant young guy. Curtis Birch was his name. And uh, uh, I had him and I write 90% of the screenplay. So I went to Joe Don Baker, who I had cast in Wacko. Very, very, very good guy. Very pleasant guy. And I said to him, uh, Joe Don, I want to do another picture, but I don't have the budget that I had in Wacko, which was true. I had Wacko, I think I shot for five weeks. Uh, Joysticks was going to be a three-week picture. Most of my pictures are three-week pictures. Uh, so... I said, it's, it's about a video arcade game. You play the parent trying to close it down. I said, but I can't pay you what I paid you on Wacko. He said, oh, that's okay. I offered him, I think, 10% of the profits above 600000 which was my budget. He said, okay, that's fine. I'll do it. And he liked the script. Joe Don loved comedy. Wacko was a comedy, of course. So we made the picture... The distributor of Wacko became the distributor of joysticks. He took the picture out. He tested it in El Paso, Texas. Picture went through the roof. Highest gross he had ever had for any picture that he had distributed. And he had been in business 10 years or so. So he then opened the picture in five or 600 theaters, primarily in the South. We were the number one grossing picture in the whole United States. Wow. It was unbelievable. The picture, uh, you know, again, in those days, I don't know, it was probably a couple of bucks to get into the theater. And uh, we did like $6 million. Oof, damn. He called me the Monday after the weekend opening. Great, great. This is terrific. We've never had a picture do this. Uh, they had distributed a picture called Private Lessons. And it had done 17 million. He said, this is this did almost twice what private lessons did. He said, you're a multimillionaire, great, and congratulations. Said, oh, great, great, you know. <laughs> so <laughs> don't feel sorry for me because I, there's no reason to because I've enjoyed everything, even this. So three months later, he owed me a payment of $200,000, which he never paid, and he filed bankruptcy. Uh. Owing me a million, too. Oh. Uh. Son of a bitch. Which oh. I never got a penny of. <laughs> Anyhow, so <laughs> that was the story with joysticks. So a year goes by where I'm saying, oh, my God, what? how, how do I recover from this? A guy calls me. He was a foreign distributor who had distributed uh, a couple of pictures of mine, one called High Riders and one called Angel's Brigade. And he had done quite well with him. He called me 
for a while he was pissed because I did not give him distribution rights on like three pictures in a row, but I had distributors that were giving me money. So he called me, he said, Graydon, would you go to Malta to make a movie? Yes. <laughs> I said, where the hell is Malta? They have falcons there? <laughs> so it turns out that Malta is a little island off the coast of Italy. And they do a lot of filming there. They have they have a huge tank. Uh, it's, it's the size of two football fields. It's about four feet deep. And they put sets on rollers and put cameras on rollers and they can film stuff and it overlooks the Mediterranean Ocean. Is it Mediterranean Sea or Ocean? What is it? Anyhow. Sea. Uh, Mediterranean Sea. Yes. Thank you. So it overlooks the Mediterranean Sea. So it's a perspective like you're in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea. So they said, look, here's the deal. They will supply an American company with everything over there, hotels, food, equipment, crews, everything. We as the Americans have to supply the American director, the screenplay, and one American star. So this guy, this distributor says, so great, can you write something we can do in Malta? So he and I go over there to look it out, to check it out, make sure that that there is equipment and crews, which there were. They were very talented people. So I come back and I start writing something. And I think, you know, Joe Don is so great to work with, both on Wacko and Joystick. He's such a cooperative guy. And, you know, a lot of people don't understand who Joe Don is. Joe Don is, yes, a Texas boy, but nothing like what you think of as a Yahoo from Texas. He's a college graduate. He's a, a lifetime member of the Actors Studio. He went to New York and learned how to act. He's a great, great actor and a very intelligent guy and a very kind, kind guy. So I contact Joe Don and I say, listen, I got a chance. And, and Joe Don, who was going to get 10% of the $2 million I would have earned on joysticks, you know, when I called him and I said, listen, that distributor's filed bankruptcy. <laughs> Rather than being pissed for what he was losing, he was sad for, for what I was losing. And uh, he said, don't worry about me, Graydon, but I, this must be a tremendous blow to you. And and uh, it was. But anyhow, so yeah. so Joe Don said, well, if you, if you write something, I said, Joe Don, I will tailor it to you. It's going to be a Texas sheriff who somehow ends up in Malta and then the adventure starts. <laughs> so, uh, and he agreed to do it for minimal wage, uh, much less than his normal quote. And uh, uh, so I wrote the script and showed it to him. He said, this sounds pretty good. We'll do it. Let's do it. So I went over to Malta in pre-production and he came over. I think I had five or six weeks there in Malta filming that. Uh, again, Joe Don was very, very cooperative. Uh, I got uh, Rosano Brazzi to come down from Rome. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was going to ask about him. Yeah. What happened was I'd written a part for the main bad guy, uh, but he had to be 
middle age at most because there was a lot of chasing and uh, minor stunt work and so on and so forth, fights and what have you. Sure. But also there was a, a godfather type character who was the head of the mob there in Malta. So I went to Rome in pre-production to cast the 40-year-old main bad guy. Uh, Palermo was his name, uh, his yeah. character's name. And uh, the way they cast in Rome, uh, or Italy, I guess, was different than what I was used to. But w what I was used to is I would have actors come in, if they were not known actors, young actors, I would have them come in and read for me, and then I would choose which one I thought would be better for the part. Sure. But in Rome, they, they, the Maltese said, you should see this casting director at Cinecita, the major studio there in Rome. So I went to see her, and 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 uh, she had read the script. We'd gotten her the script before. And, and she said, so what are you casting out of Rome? I said, well, there's a young girl, a dancer. I don't think I can find her in Malta. There's the uh, godfather type, the older guy. I have to get an Italian to come down. I need him to speak English. And then there's the uh, main bad guy, 40-year-old in good physical condition. I need him to speak English. She said, well, I have three that will work. I said, uh, well, do I get to see him? No, you'll have to trust me. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> she said, Rosano Brazzi. I said, oh, Rosano Brazzi would be great. He would be terrific. I would love to have Rosano Brazzi. I don't need to see him. Because he was a major international star for years and years. Yep. Yeah. And she said, I'll tell you what, I'll send uh, the young guy, not the young guy, but the 40-year-old actor uh, over to uh, your hotel to meet you so you can meet him. I said, okay, I'm going to Malta tomorrow, so do it this afternoon. He said, okay. So I was over at my hotel, in walks this guy who looked perfect. He looked like a mafia guy. He was Italian. He spoke very good English. He had credits for 30 years in the Italian industry, and he had done also American films that had shot in Italy. So he was perfect. And uh, I said to him, do you know this uh, actress named uh, Pellegrino? Oh, yeah, I know her. I said, what do you think about her for the for the mob girl? Oh, she'd be fine. I said, okay. So I, I cast those three. I went back to Malta. Started filming. Uh, all of them were there on time, worked well. Then, because I only had Rosanna Brazzi for a week. So then, it's time for Rosano to come down. He flies in. Uh, I was shooting, so I didn't get a chance to see him, but I had one assistant that I brought with me. Uh, I also brought my cameraman, of course, from America. But I had one assistant production manager, and I had him meet Rosano, make sure he was happy at the hotel and everything. Everything was fine. The next day, Rosano had a call. I don't know, let's say, I usually, with older people, don't give them too early calls. So it's probably 9 o'clock. Comes 9 o'clock, he's not there. I said, what? where's Rosano? I say to my production manager, you did meet him. He's at the hotel. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He seemed fine. I don't understand. So I said, well, maybe he's running a little. We had a driver for him. I said, well, maybe he's running a little late. So now it's 9.30. Where the hell is Rosano? I said to my production manager, 
look, call the hotel, find out if the guy's dead or living, if he's going to come, what the hell is happening? <laughs> so a few minutes later, production manager comes back and he says, he wa- I think I was paying him $10,000 for the five days. He says, Rosano does not leave his hotel until he gets paid for the day. You got to give him two thousand dollars cash. What? I said. What? <laughs> so I said, okay, fine. So I give my production manager two thousand dollars cash. He hops in a car, takes a 10, 15 minute ride back to the hotel. Ten, fifteen minutes later, in walks Rosano. He comes up to me. He said, "Good, good. Please don't be offended. This not that's uh, this is the way it always is. We get so many people that we never get paid that none of us." We'll leave the hotel until we're paid for the day in cash. Please don't be offended. I said, Rosano, don't you be offended because I didn't know that's the way it was. It was my fault, not yours. Oh, okay, okay. Very wonderful guy from then on. He was easy to work with. So uh, uh, because I know you're a Final Justice fan, I'll talk about one more scene with Rosano. First scene, poolside. Rosano is sitting there. He has a girl with him. Uh, the, the other Italian actor is there with them. He has a, they each have girls. There's a couple of other girls swimming in the pool. I set up a dolly shot, uh, starting and went into the pool, dollying, dollying to, to the other. And then there's dialogue between the two Italian actors. So the way I direct, I like to have my cast know what I'm doing, what I want, because I, I think that if they say, oh, I see what he's doing here. If they just see the one shot, then they don't know what what else I'm going to do. So I say to them, okay, we're going to dolly here. Then I'm going to go and shoot over the shoulders here. Then I'm going to do close-ups here. Then you're going to take the one girl into the pool, and you're going to take off her top, and you're going to dunk her, and you're going to be mean to her. This was not Rosano, but the other guy. Uh, so I, you know, take five minutes to explain to them what we're going to do. And I said, then when we're finished, we're going to go into the house. Rosano said, when we're finished, what you just explained is going to take all day. Well, I was a very experienced, low-budget director. I knew what I wanted and what I needed. And uh, so I said, Rosano, when we're done with this, we're going to go inside, and I'll explain to you when we get there what we're going to do. He said, whatever you say, Mr. Director. Well... (laughs) We did what I said. He was very cooperative, but he, he did, wasn't used to. So, Final Justice is finished. I had one scene where I used their tank. It was great. I should have used it more. But when I was writing, I didn't even know about the tank. Right. So I come back and I decide I'm going to go back to Malta and use that tank. I'm going to have a luxury yacht. And it's going to be a couple of Wall Street manipulators who have stole <laughs> stole a bunch of money. Oh my God. So I write the script uh, and uh, the first uh, draft of the script, it was a rat on board right. the ship that was causing problems. Young people are brought board by this Wall Street manipulator who, who wants to have sex with them. They're brought on board. They're out in the middle of the ocean. It gets waylaid, and there's a rat. Well, my wife, Jackie, 
uh, who was an actress and I'd worked with her since my very first movie, which she, I always had her read my scripts and half the time she'd say, that's stupid. You can't do that. And I would throw it away and write something else. <laughs> but she said, it's a pretty good script, but who wants to see a rat? Nobody likes rats. I said, well, what about Willard? Ah, oh, that was a one-time thing. I changed it to a cat <laughs> and he had a monster inside of him. So anyhow, I get the script done. I fly back to Malta. Now, I needed a very large ship, a yacht, a boat, because the cat has to hide and they have to chase him. And the, 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 some people have to be here. They have to be upstairs, downstairs. It has to be really a large boat. So I'm in Malta and I explained to them what I need. And they kept taking me to very nice yachts, but they were roughly the size of the, of the boat in Jaws. And I said, I can't have 90% of my movie on this one boat. It's got to be huge. Yeah. Well, we can't find it. So I said, okay, guys, thanks very much. They wanted me very much to stay and do it, but they just couldn't find what I needed. So I fly back and I, I, somebody said, you should check Jamaica. So I fly back from Malta, stop in New York, get a ticket to go to Jamaica. I go down there again, no real huge boats. So I go back to Los Angeles and I say, you know, I don't think I can make this movie. Because I, I'd, I'd have to reconceive the entire script. Mm -hmm. So Jackie says to me, well, why don't you go down to the marina? I said, the marinas, they, they have nice boats, nice yachts. I'd love to have one. But it's not good. Well, why don't you go see? So I go down to the marina. And again, it's like Malta. It's like Jamaica. Nice, nice boats. But nothing that you could take a 90-minute movie on. So I say to... Uh, uh, a guy at, uh, at at a bait shop there. I said, Jesus, I need a big ship. I can't. He said, well, you're not going to find any at the marina. you got to go down to Long Beach where the huge ships come in from uh, Asia and they'll, there might be something there. Oh, okay. So I hop in the car and go down to Long Beach and I there's a security guard there. And he says, you know, you can't look around these ships. So I explained to him I'm making a movie. Whenever you say that, most people say, oh, you're making a movie? Yeah. So I explained what I need. He said, uh, I said, wait a minute. There's a ship that looks, I remember seeing it. It's docked such and such, he told me. Uh, sounds like it might work for you. He said, uh, I think it's being sold. I said, oh. So I go over there, and my God, there's this beautiful, huge, white ship. I mean, I looked, I thought I saw the ghost of Aristotle Onassis standing on it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it was perfect. So there's a guard there, too. And I say to them, who owns this? How can I get in touch? So he gave me the phone number of the guy. So I go to see him. Very wealthy guy, obviously. He says... He just sold the ship. Uh, it's He's taking it to Seattle for delivery. I said, so when are you doing that? He said, three to four weeks. I said, oh, Jesus. I said, okay, look, 
let's make a deal. You give me four weeks so I can film because I knew I would film in three weeks. Uh, and I was pretty much prepared. Uh, uh, give me four weeks before you before it leaves this port to go to Seattle. He said, what are you going to pay me? I said, well, you know, it's a little budget. I said, uh, for the three weeks, I'll give you a thousand a week. He said, a thousand a week. Do you know what this ship I'm selling it for? I'm selling it for almost two million dollars. <laughs> you want me to hold this up for three thousand dollars? He said, in addition to which, it has to have a captain because I was going to take it out to sea. It has to have a captain and a crew member. The captain costs me $200 a day, and the crew member is $100 a day. I said, I can't do that. I said, well, I'll tell you what. I'll pay the captain his $150 a day or $200 a day, and I'll pay the crew member $100 a day, and I'll give you $2,000 for the thing. I said, what the hell? You have nothing to lose. So we finally settled, I think, at like 5000 for the three weeks. So... Then I made uninvited. That's amazing. Again, a lot of people talk about it. They think it's a uh, a scary, funny movie, and that's what I intended. Before we jump into uninvited, I just want to comment one other thing on Rosano Brazi. Uh, he is a legend on this show because a year or two ago we did the Christmas that almost wasn't, uh, starring him as uh, the titular prune. So I, I really appreciate that story. <laughs> I'll tell you one more story. His last shot of his time in Malta. Uh, it's a, <laughs> he gets shot and Yo, takes it like a half a step back. <laughs> I cut and I bring in a stuntman. The stuntman puts on his robe. I think it was a white robe. I put a whole bunch of blood in it and the stuntman goes through the glass uh, partition. I cut I go over to Rosano. I say, Rosano, I need you now to, to, to lay on the ground there so I can get a shot of you after you've been shot. He said, you want me to put on that bloody bathroom? <laughs> I said, well, Rosano, it's just for a quick shot. It just, you know how fast I am. I'll get the camera all set. The lights all set. You'll slip on the robe. You'll lie down. I'll get the shot. He said, all right, all right. So, we did, and he did. So now, cut, he stands up, the wardrobe person takes the bloody robe off of him, and he looks at me and he says, what, no clean robe? <laughs> you know, I said, oh, Rosano, I told you this was a low-budget movie. I'm sorry I don't have a robe for you. You're welcome to use the bloody one. <laughs> he said, no, that's all right. That's okay. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, everybody. <laughs> Goodbye. I, I want to say regarding Final Justice, um, I discovered that movie as a child because uh, Mr. Science Theater was on regular rotation every Saturday morning in my house. Yeah. Um, and me and my good friend, who I promised I would bring her up, my friend Sarah, uh, were trading tapes for a long time in uh, middle school. And Final Justice was one of them. And I have been enamored with that movie ever since I saw it on that show. Joe Don Baker's amazing in that movie. I love the Italian actors. Uh, they all have such scene-chewing uh, performances, especially the guy who plays Palermo. Um, yes. And you're uh, you're in the beginning, right? Aren't you his, uh, his partner who gets shot? Yes, I am. Yes, you're the one who tells him to stop eating those damn donuts. <laughs> yes, exactly. I often would take 
small roles because I didn't want to pay some other actor. But especially being in Malta, I didn't certainly want to bring an American actor over there for one scene. So uh, I did it, and uh, I always enjoyed doing that. Yeah, it, it, and you do it in Uninvited as well. Yes. Okay, so we, we have a few questions about Uninvited. Um, I, guess, I guess the first one I want to ask is there's two different cuts of this film. I was a little confused about that because you seem like such uh, you, you know exactly what you want, you know what I mean? And because um, you were, you're a low-budget filmmaker, like you, were, you had to be on point all the time, right? And exactly put all that money in where it needed to go, um, especially for Uninvited, it seems. What happened with that? Uh, with the international version, there's, like, the, there's a lot cut out of the beginning, specifically like your performance as the doctor and, and in the whole parking garage thing. And there's a completely alternate ending, too, as well. So I was wondering if you can talk about that. Yes, distributors is the answer. Okay. (laughs) Uh, I finished the picture. It was the international version. So that's the original cut. That's the original cut. Ah, Then the U.S. distributor came to me and said, we need an opening where the cat escapes and there's somebody with a gun and we see him being killed or his shadow being killed or something. We need to set up earlier the uh, monster. And gotcha. again, going back to without warning, I said, okay, I'll do that. I only shot one day. I'll do that, but I'm not going to show the monster. I'll show it in silhouette or hidden in some way. He said, okay, fine. So basically it was the request of a distributor. And that's, that's how that came about. Yeah, I actually prefer um, the international cut be- or the original cut rather because it's, it's very vague. Like it, because it you know it opens up and you have the shot of the building, the the genetic laboratory building, and then um, and then the shot of the guys in the radiation suits, and then the cat, and yeah. then we just cut right to Suzanne and Bobby. Right. And I I really think it's more impactful that way, especially later uh, when Martin talks about like, oh, it's a cat that escaped from a genetic laboratory or whatever. Yeah. I mean, not that I don't appreciate... I'm, I'm not, I'm not going <laughs> to lie, though. I do love seeing you get taken out by this cat jumping out of a sunroof. <laughs> uh, I was also going to say, as an animal care professional, I work in an animal hospital, I probably could have saved everyone in that building a little bit of time by restraining that cat for you guys. <laughs> <laughs> But then, but then, wait a minute. There would be no movie. Of course, yeah, it wouldn't yeah. be. There you go. I will say your first big mistake was leaving that door open. <laughs> I had a chance to meet uh, Clue Gulliger a few years back. Great guy. And, great guy. Oh, oh my God, he's wonderful. Uh, funny as hell. Actually, had an original one sheet of Uninvited. I brought with me, and he signed it. So I was chatting with him, and he mentioned that his son had worked effects on the film, but I couldn't find a credit for him. Is that true? Partially true. His his son, unbeknownst to me at the time, but since then I found, and it was fine, his son created his false teeth. (laughs) Gotcha. (laughs) They're great. Now, what what happened with Clue, again, uh, when you're casting a picture, the young people come in, they interview you, you have them read, etc. But the stars, the, the Clue Gulliger, the George Kennedy, the Alex Cords, they don't come in to meet you. You meet them first day on the set, right? So George I'd worked with before on Wacom, so he and I knew one another. So uh, the first day they're all working together, right, all three of them. And uh, I 
I always, always called my older actors when I first meet them, Mr. Mr. Uh, Cord, Mr. Gulliger, and every single one. And I've used major actors in all my films. Every single one would say, no, no, Graydon, please call me Clue or whatever. Well, I guess it was only Clue that actually said, call me Clue. The uh, rest of them would use their real first name. So Clue, I go over, I look at Clue, and he doesn't look quite right to me. <laughs> you know, I mean, uh, he's got this kind of buck teeth. And right. I thought, is that Clue Gulliger? I mean, I don't remember him having that, but I, I thought, well, it works for the part, so I never questioned him about it. So uh, I had Clue for only three days. I had uh, uh, Alex Cord for two weeks and George Kennedy for one week. So uh, we're filming the scene on the boat where there's a jacuzzi and they're going to drown the guy that they think is squealing on them to the authorities. So I need to have Clue, who was kind of the flunky henchman of, of Alex Cord and George Kennedy. I need to have him dunk the guy, hold him underwater uh, and drown him. So Clue says to me, Graydon, what if I jump in the water and hold him down? Wouldn't that be better than me trying to? I said, Clue, if you, if you would do that, that would be terrific. So, we're, you know, we're filming the scene. Clue jumps in the water, holds the actor down. Incidentally, I'm sure you know, the way that's done is Clue is not actually holding the actor down. It's the actor staying down. So that if he needs to come up for any reason, he can. Sure. Anyhow, uh, so Clue jumps into water, holds the guy down. One, two, three, four, five. Struggle, struggle, struggle. Six, seven, eight, nine. Okay, cut. So the guy bobs up, keeping his face underwater as if he's dead. So Clue looks to the two guys that he basically works for. And he starts shivering, holding his hands holding his shoulders and shivering. And uh, Alex Cord said to George Kennedy, which was one of the few ad-libs I ever have allowed, he said, look at, look at, I've forgotten Clue's character's name. Albert. Albert. Albert, yeah. Look at, look at Albert. Look at him shake. Look at him shake. Shake. And uh, Clue says, I'm just cold. I'm just cold. So that was a nice piece of bit with, Clue and the rest of the guys. That's so funny. So he, so his son just made the teeth, and that was it, huh? That's to my knowledge, that's correct. <laughs> he just showed up with them. Like yeah. said. That's that's so funny. Now, had I said to Clue, you know, I don't want you to go with those obviously false teeth, he'd have said, sure. "My son made them." Sure. <laughs> gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. How can you tell me no? <laughs> So did you have to shoot the alternate ending as well, too? Or, I mean, did they make you change that? Well, uh... Which I believe is your son yes, on both is. accounts, well, right? Son, it's my son on both of them. What happened, I frankly have forgotten shooting the one where he's on the uh, bridge, uh, or pier, rather. He's on a pier, and he comes running up with the case, and it opens up, and up pops the monster. I had forgotten that I shot that. <laughs> and uh, uh, the, the vinegar people contacted me when they were preparing and said, we have an alternate ending. And I said, you have what? 
said, there's no alternate ending. He said, yes, there is. He said, there's no sound to it, but it's you and it looks like your son. And I said, no, that's the one where my son picks up the cat. That's the actual ending. No, no, no. So they sent, sent it to me. I looked at it. I contacted my son and said, Trevor, do you remember doing this? I remember the one on the beach where I picked up the cat. And I said, well, somehow we must have filmed this. <laughs> and I, I think I know when we did it. Uh, you know, the way I was forced to shoot all of my pictures, going back to maybe the very beginning, but certainly without warning and uninvited, whenever there was a monster that would do something, I would not film that at the time of principal photography because I didn't have time. To, I'm going to jump back now to without warning. Jack Palance gets a uh, creature flung at him. It gets him in his leg. He bends down and he carves the creature off. Well, I had Jack do all that. And then Jack gets up and uh, uses his gun as kind of a crutch and he hobbles away. But I did not film. Jack actually digging into the monster, the creature, and pulling it off his leg. I did that in my garage uh, six or eight weeks later after I had edited, edited the film. I knew that I needed a close shot. So when you, when you look at that picture and it cuts to Jack's hands, those are mine. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. I pull off the creature and there's a... It's, it's actually a, a prophylactic, a rubber that's, that's inside of it and it blows up and pops. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I decided to leave that in. I thought it was funny. I thought it was good. So, so to come back then to Uninvited, you recall that when, uh, Bo, Bo was the actor's name, uh, when Bo, uh, you know, he's been shot by George Kennedy and his, his arm, there's no feeling in his arm. Yes. And he's there in bed with, uh, the girl, and uh, uh, he says, uh, yeah, you know, they're getting romantic. He says, the funny thing is, I still can't feel anything in my hand. And we pull back the uh, the uh, cover, and there's our monster chewing on his hand. <laughs> that was not filmed at the time of principal photography. Because, again, to set that up and everything, it probably would have been a half hour, 45 minutes. Yeah. And, you know, in a three-week movie, you don't have a half an hour, 45 minutes. Where if you can do that without the actors, without the rest of the crew, you just have your cameraman and maybe one light, you can take two hours to do it. It doesn't make any difference. Sure. Especially because of all the effects on it and stuff yeah, like that. Yeah, of course. I guess I have a question going off of what you just said then. Maybe this is like a two-part answer. But going back to what you were saying about renting this boat, um, yeah, there's a lot of scenes where people are either shooting things or bleeding on things. And uh, I, I guess my first part of this question, I guess is what I'm trying to say is, did blood get on this fucking $2 million boat? Well, the thing is, <laughs> it was not in as good a shape as we made it look. Oh, okay. And the guy was going to gut the whole interior. We had to bring in... The uh, the uh, set dressings, <clears throat> the chairs, okay. and all that were all stuff that we had to bring in. Uh, it was an older carpet. It was, uh, you know, he was going to sell it, and sure. uh, so I I never like to damage anything because I'm going to have to pay for it. But uh, he he didn't really care. So we, 
you know, if we had blood on the couch, those were my couches. Okay. And I guess a second part to that question, just because it kind of leads into it, this uh, this cat creature, uh, in my opinion, and I think in our opinion in general, has has a a little bit of a uh, comedy element to it. It, it. it seems like it taunts these characters throughout the film and laughs at them. Was that intentional? Absolutely, yes. Because <laughs> I love that. <laughs> I love it. Uh, I try to put as much humor in everything as I can. And, and uh, whenever I could make something a little bit comical or unusual, I did it. And definitely, I wanted the cat to have a personality. Because after all, the cat is totally innocent. It's the yeah. monster who lives inside him that does all this. So pity the poor cat. You know, over the years I've had <laughs> I've had people send me uh stuff on Facebook and what have you. And they would say something like this. Oh, that poor cat, what you did to him. You know, I I I I've heard that uh, uh a year after he was found in a dumpster and you didn't take care of him, how awful it is. And I would say, excuse me, first of all, it was not one cat. It was three or four cats. They were professionally trained by animal trainers. They took care of their animals because that's how they make their living. They took care of their animals. Uh, They would have one trainer at one end of the shot off camera holding the cat and another at the other end of the shot off camera. And then they they would keep the animals hungry, not starve, but hungry. And the trainer at the end where we wanted the cat to go would click a little mouse clicker, click, click, click. And then the other trainer would let the cat go and the cat would run over to uh, uh, get food. And that's how we would film him. And uh, the animals that I've used, and I've used a number of animals, uh, dogs, bears, cats, I don't know what else off the top of my head. Uh, uh, They always come with a trainer who is extremely protective of his animals because, again, that's how he makes his living. So there's one shot in Uninvited when George Kennedy uh, gets bitten on his foot by the cat. Yes. Okay. Uh, Then George kind of – let me back up for a second. (laughs) First day shooting, George comes to me. He has a limp. He says, Graydon. Now, remember, we had already worked together on Wacko. He says, Graydon, you can see I'm limping. I said, yes. He said, I just had knee surgery replaced. He said, I've read the script carefully, and it looks to me like there's nothing in it that I have to do that I will be unable to do because of my recent knee replacement. I said, George, no problem. Uh, do you want a cane? No, I'll just limp through it. No problem. So now we're filming the scene where the cat bites on his foot, right? Yeah. And George has a gun in his hand. So the, the, the cat starts biting him. And that one I did not do as an insert because I wanted to uh, include George in the shot. So George is struggling and around. I'm thinking, oh, my God, am I, you know, going to have a problem with his knee? So he shoots at the cat. And the cat, the monster, and the monster kind of goes up and there's a jar next to him. I have it explode. And the monster runs off. Okay. FYI, that's the only shot where I actually had to uh, double the cat with a dog. 
I think we actually talked about that in our review last night. Joe, didn't you mention you thought it was like a you thought it was a like a dog with a blanket on it or something? Or something yeah, like that. Yeah. Yeah, it was like I was like that looked like a dog with with a with a you know whatever on it. Yeah, whatever the hair. You- wait a second. Now you weren't supposed to know that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm very observant. So, so that the animal trainer had come to me before and said, "Look, cats." You can't train them like you can train a dog. They will not run away and then down those stairs the way you need it because you got to get the cat on another level away from the people. I'm, I'm calling him cat. Well, cat, monster, same thing. So he said, what I'll do is I'll bring a dog that's the size of this cat. I'll put a, a uh, dressing on him, fur of a cat so that he looks like your cat. And you got to do it quick. You got to do it quick. And, uh, you know, he can be go from point A to point B down the stairs. So that's how that happened. Yeah, it's it's effective, in my opinion. I always love those shots where, you know, it, it, it cut like something. You see something real quick cut around a corner. Um, Coscarelli did it in uh, Phantasm really well. And I just I just love those shots, and it works really well. Since we're kind of talking about that particular scene, uh, this is, I mean, we see it with Clue a little bit, this uh, pulsating effect on his neck, but we really get the full effect with George Kennedy. Could you uh, tell us a little bit about how that was made? Well, what you do is uh, you, you have fake skin, and you cover up a tube uh, that is attached uh, at one end to a, uh, a bulb, and uh, it's underneath his fake skin. It has to be the same color and texture and so forth. And it's really a makeup thing. And uh, the bulb is off camera, of course. And uh, the wire usually goes either down his sock and then out the end of his toes or down a shoe or whatever, you know, so that it's off camera. And then you have a makeup person who is pumping that so that it, and it's sending liquid up through that. And uh, you have it stopped at one end so the liquid comes back and it gives a, a pulsating look to it. And that's the same with the neck or the leg or anything else. Now that we're talking about that, I had one more question. Um, there's a few points in the film where the cat bites somebody um, and they have, you know, these giant bulbs on their neck uh, expand. Were any of them supposed to explode and didn't? Well, I think... Didn't George Kennedy's explode on his leg? His the one on his leg did, um, and when his chest boils up, it kind of it kind of grows and then shrinks. Um, I guess specifically Suzanne's uh, when she, when she eats the poison. Yes, food, right, right. Um, she has a big bulb on her neck, and it looks like she goes to grab it to pop it. And obviously, I I know that the, within time constraints and stuff, and doing effects and stuff, because I because I do effects myself. But like, if the gag didn't go off, you have to cut and then kind of fudge it a little bit so yeah. uh, there it looked like it was meant to pop to me at least i was just wondering if if that was the case i don't think it well let me put it this way if it had popped that would have been fine but i think if i recall right uh i had her holding a lantern which was her only light source <laughs> and and i said to her i said uh, sherry sherry shattuck i said sherry be sure you keep that light up by your face. Otherwise, we can't see you. So so she held it there, and then she kind of collapsed against the side and slid down. And I felt that that was enough. We'd already seen the explosion from uh, from uh, George Kennedy. 
I, I guess uh, just one final question that I have. Um, the end of the film where that boat sinks. Yeah. Um, how did you go about that? Well, <laughs> the whole scene where the cabin itself is sinking and the boat sinks, all that was shot in my swimming pool. Oh, okay. You, what wow. I did was, again, when I when I was writing the script, like an idiot, I wrote, you know, uh, Alex Cord comes in, tries to get his money, and the cat, the monster, attacks him. And uh, they go underwater and they struggle, and Alex Cord dies. So now I'm in pre-production, and I'm saying, son of a bitch, what do I do here? <laughs> <laughs> I have to find a tank to film in. So I start looking for tanks, and the only tanks are major studios. And you have to be a union crew. My crew is not union. You have to be a union crew to even get on the set, to get on the lot. Plus, it's thousands and thousands of dollars. So I'm thinking, oh, my God, what am I going to do? I'm sitting poolside thinking about this, and I look at my pool, and I say, wait a second. How, how could I do this in my pool? Well... By that time, I had a fairly large house and fairly large pool, and I had a three-car garage. And I said, well, wait a minute. Alex Cord comes into his room, his stateroom, and it's half underwater. Why don't I build the stateroom as a set in my garage? Because we had stuff that they did prior to the ship sinking. Right. So, so I built... In my garage, I say I built. I had built. <laughs> I don't know the difference between a hammer and a screwdriver. <laughs> but anyhow, I had the set built in my garage. And we shot the scenes. A split call means this. You're going to shoot some daytime stuff and then some nighttime stuff. So you don't have a call for 9 in the morning, but you have a call for noon maybe, or 12 or 1. You shoot the daytime stuff, you break for lunch or dinner, and then you shoot the nighttime stuff when you're exterior. So I, I, I said, what I'm going to do is I'm going to shoot the stuff in my garage in a daytime call. I'm going to then, and then shoot all the stuff with Alex uh, Cord and uh, the other actors that are in the stateroom, and then I'm going to break for lunch, and then I'm going to have the crew move the set into my swimming pool at night. Because at night, you only see what you like, right? You don't see the yep. sky above and all that stuff. So uh, I had to move the set into my pool, the shallow end of the pool, uh, and then I shot the scene with Alex Cord coming in and then and then uh, Eric Larson coming in and, you know, getting the money and so on and so forth. And uh, that's how it was shot. That, that's pretty amazing. That's so awesome. I, I, love, I love that idea of just being like, forget it. Like, we're just going to do it right in the pool. <laughs> we're just going to move the set into the pool and there you go. As long as it's night and you only light down into the set, you're fine. Yeah. It, it came out amazing. It looks great. 
All right, Graydon, thank you so much uh, for for joining us today and getting to talk about uh, your career and your movies and Uninvited. Um, listeners, you guys can pick up On the Cheap, My Life in Low Budget Filmmaking from Graydon himself, and he'll even personalize it for you. Go to his website, GraydonClark.com, and uh, pick up some of his films, too. It's been a pleasure getting to chat with you you're a huge influence to me and being an independent filmmaker and this book um sheds a lot of light on the business itself and just all of the stories and experiences throughout you know your whole entire career it's just fantastic and i just want to thank you uh for making your films and 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 pushing through and and doing what you had to do to get everything done well thank thank all three of you guys it's been a lot of fun and and uh, I appreciate the time. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, seriously. Okay, adios. So that's it. We hope you guys enjoyed that interview. And don't forget, you can order Graydon's book, On the Cheap, My Life in Low-Budget Filmmaking, as well as Graydon's entire film catalog directly from the man himself at GraydonClark.com. Hey, everybody, if you want some more bad movie goodness, you can check us out at MovieDumpsterPodcast.com. Subscribe to us anywhere you listen to your podcast, and make sure to leave us a five-star review if you dig the show, because it helps us get out of the bottom of the dumpster and into more eardrums. Yeah, and if you're on the social medias, you can follow us at MovieDumpster on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. The building's secure. Now, Paul, no matter what happens, we can't let that cat out of here. Dr. Gray, you saw what just happened at that stairwell. Just shut up about that. Right now, we got to kill that cat. Give me your gun. Give me your gun.